The text this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and reading verses 5 through 16. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 16. I've entitled the message, Comfort and Renewal for Those Distressed. And so here's how the text reads, for even when we came into Macedonia, this is Paul talking, of course, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fightings without and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, But also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. There are two truths about the Christian life that stand out in this text. Truth number one, there are times where Christians battle discouragement and distress And yes, even depression. That's truth number one. Truth number two in our passage is that God brings us comfort and he renews our hope, oftentimes through other people. Let's start with the first truth. There are times in life where for a whole host of reasons, We may battle with discouragement, despair, we're overwhelmed, we are afraid, maybe even depression lays hold of us. 
Maybe some of you listening are in that place. One of those words I use describes you even this morning. In the context of our passage, Paul had sent his dear co-worker Titus to Corinth. There were problems in the church there. And so Paul sent uh, Titus as his emissary to go to Corinth and deal with some of the issues that were there. But Paul hadn't heard back from him. Titus hadn't returned from Corinth. And you read back in chapter 3, in verses 12 and 13, here's the backstory to our text. The two of them agreed that Titus was going to go to Corinth and that when his visit there was completed at a certain time and date, they were going to meet together in the city of Troas. Troas today is on the western coast of what is the country of Turkey, right on the Aegean Sea, not too far from where all the earthquakes, by the way, have devastated. So they were going to meet in the city of Troas. Well, while Paul's in Troas, Titus goes across to the European continent, goes south into Greece to Corinth. And, and while he is on that journey, Paul, back in Troas, experienced a great trial. He doesn't delineate what it exactly was. But he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. There was an affliction, there was a trial that was beyond my strength to bear and to deal with. And then he goes on to say, it was so severe, Paul says, we despaired of life itself. What kind of trial must that have been? So he's undergoing a great trial where, as he says, I'm burdened beyond my strength to carry it, and I despaired of even making it despaired of life itself, and add to that, Titus was supposed to have shown up in Troas, and there's no Titus. So Paul starts to think, as you can imagine, wonder what happened to him. Why haven't I heard from him? Did he experience some kind of accident? Maybe things aren't going well in Corinth. Who is to say? And so Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 13, having experienced, as he describes in chapter 1, this great trial beyond his strength to bear, despairing of life itself, there's no Titus, he says in chapter 2 and verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit. And so what Paul decides to do is cross over the Aegean Sea from the port city of Troas and just go across the Aegean Sea to the Roman province of Macedonia and start looking for Titus. And so when he arrived in the province of Macedonia, this is where our text picks up. How does Paul describe his health? How does he describe his frame of mind in verse 5? Notice what he says. Our bodies had no rest. Have you ever been exhausted? And not just exhausted because you worked hard, but because all kinds of stuff are going on in your life besides. Paul says here, our bodies had no rest. You can imagine the physical toll. You can imagine the emotional toll that it, all these things had taken on the Apostle Paul. He says, we are afflicted at every turn. And then he says, fightings without and fears within. If you have an English Standard Version, those words are unfortunately in the singular. They're not in the singular. 
They're in the plural. Fighting is plural. Fear is plural. Fightings without and fears within. The 19th century hymn writer, Charlotte Elliott, in her great hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea, she wrote it in a time of distress. In one of the stanzas, she paraphrases our text. And here's the stanza. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Here's the Apostle Paul, beset by inner fears, concerns of all kinds, outer conflicts. He's drained physically and emotionally. He's thinking about what's going to happen to his apostolic work. When he was in the Roman province of Asia, he suffered something where he didn't think he was going to survive. What are the days ahead going to look like? Seems like there's always somebody unhappy with me over something. Opposition wherever I go. There are those who try to undercut the ministry that I'm engaged in. There are church conflicts in various places, the latest being in Corinth where I sent Titus to try to straighten it out. And you notice as a result of all these things I've described, they all come together. And you notice in verse 6, as a result of that inner turmoil, fears, concerns, struggles on the inside, outward conflict, serious illness he barely recovered from, exhaustion in every way, how does Paul describe himself? In most of our versions, it's translated as downcast. Notice in the beginning of verse 6. The New American Standard Version comes much closer to the meaning of the word. It translates it as depressed. Paul was depressed, verse 6 tells us. I know some well-meaning folks, my wife and I both knew well-meaning folks, who argue that if a professing believer is ever depressed, oh, there's something spiritually wrong. Person isn't trusting in God. There's stuff in the life they haven't dealt with and so on. Now, sometimes that can be true. I have met people where that's true. But it's not always the case. Back in January of 1995, I had the privilege of attending the annual pastor's conference at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. John Piper was pastor there for many years. You hear me quote him from time to time because I appreciate his sermons and his writings. It was the first time I heard him speak in person at that pastor's conference. And one of the things that John Piper did every year at these annual pastor's conferences was he would present for one of the sessions, he would present a lecture on a great figure from church history, which interested me, of course. And then he would draw from that person's life lessons for us as pastors about life, ministry, those kinds of things. So that January 1995, there at that pastor's conference, it was a morning session, the topic of his lecture was Charles Spurgeon. You hear me quote him many, many times. I appreciate what he's had to say over the years is very much. Charles Spurgeon preaching through adversity was the subtitle. 
Let me just put up, some of you have never seen a photograph. Here's a photograph of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, there are the dates of his life. You can see that on the screen. And early on in his introduction, before he ever got into the life of Charles Spurgeon and what he wanted to say to us as pastors in particular, John Piper said this in, in, the, in the introduction to his lecture. He said to us as pastors, and I quote him here, the question for us is not how do you live through unremitting criticism and distrust and accusation and abandonment. For us, the question is also how do you preach through it? How do you do heart work? And this, this was really what he was getting at in the lecture. How do you do heart work when the heart is under siege and ready to fall? Believe me, when he said that, I was all ears. And every one of us as pastors there, we were ready to listen with interest and focus and with a sense of hopefulness as to what we were going to hear. And what John Piper did in the lecture is, before he got to the victory that Spurgeon experienced in all of his trials, he laid out for us the trials that he experienced. And I want to just briefly touch on them. First of all, there were the ordinary frustrations of ministry. All of us as pastors have those sorts of things. Uh, and particularly the ongoing frustration for Spurgeon and the disappointment with lukewarm members who just would show up every so often and not really be engaged. That was, it's discouraging for me. It's discouraging for every pastor. So that was number one. Then there was in his life early on an extraordinary calamity. On the 19th of October in 1856, he would have been only 22 years old. He was already by then a great renowned preacher in Great Britain. He was preaching at uh, the music hall at uh, the Royal Surrey Gardens in London. You can Google a picture. It was one of these uh, iron and glass glorious Victorian buildings seated 10,000 people. And so he was there to speak on the 19th of October, seating capacity 10,000, but the crowds far exceeded the 10,000 limit in the building. And as everybody was crammed in there, somebody shouted out, fire! And there was a huge panic, and there was a stampede, and seven people were trampled to death, and a great many were injured, some of them very seriously. And Spurgeon, from that point on till the day he died, he never got over that traumatic experience. He had what we would call today PTSD out of that experience. Well, then you add to that his wife became an invalid when she was only 33 years old. Uh, she was in such serious physical affliction, she could almost never, ever leave the house. In fact, for the remaining 27 years that the two of them were married before Spurgeon's death, she hardly heard her husband preach once in 27 years because she could never leave the house. Then, in addition to that, Charles Spurgeon had all kinds of physical sufferings and illnesses. He suffered from gout, from rheumatism, from what used to be called Bright's disease, which is nephritis, it's called today, an inflammation of the kidneys. So he had that to battle with. Then there were times where he was maligned by theological liberals on his left and ultra-conservative folks on his right. 
And so he battled with significant depression. There were times in his life, as he himself testifies, that he would just weep like a baby. The first time it happened was at the age of 24, and here's what he writes. He says, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I wept for. On another occasion, he said this, and again I'm quoting Charles Spurgeon, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with. And he went on to say it takes the hand of God to open the door of hope and take one out of a gloomy prison. A sermon that he preached in 1866, he preached at the great Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for a number of years. 5,000 seating in the sanctuary, it was full every Sunday. One of his sermons in 1866, he shocked the congregation when he said this in his sermon. And again, I'm quoting from the sermon. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I know. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, bar none. His sermons are still in print. I have a huge shelf, volumes of his sermons. You hear me quote from him fairly often. Suffering from significant depression. If I had time this morning, I would tell you the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther also suffered from severe, unremitting depression. So you think about that and you think, okay, I don't know how that works. So Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher, suffering from depression, okay, maybe, I don't get it, Martin Luther, the one who sparked the Protestant Reformation, significant depression, I don't get it, but the Apostle Paul, I was depressed, verse 6, really? The Apostle? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. But you notice our text from Paul admitting to, depre to depression is a text filled with hope. And that hope starts in verse 6. But God who comforts the depressed is the opening clause of verse 6. But God. Paul says all the things that I have described in this letter, illness, sleeplessness, uh, missing meals, physical exhaustion, uh, mental wear and tear, anxiety, afflictions, fears inside and outside, all of these things that come together, they're overwhelming, but God. But God. And I can testify that for me over the years, those two words have become two of the most precious words anywhere in the Bible. And I want to just point you to a couple of passages where those two glorious words are together. The first one is in Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, inside and outside, fightings within and fears without. All right, that's kind of what the psalmist is saying. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God... But God what? He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you can say, but God, makes all the difference. Paul, in the book of Romans, 
Notice these glorious verses. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me, isn't it? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Paul says, I can imagine there's a, what society would call a good person. Somebody might lay down his life for that person. I can imagine that might be possible. Scarcely will one die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God. We're lost in our sin. We are ungodly. What hope do we have? But God steps into the picture. He shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, not on the road to making new resolutions and trying a little bit harder, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's hope. That's good news. Sinners through and through, but God, the book of Romans says. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts out the chapter by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he unpacks in the next phrases what that looks like. And it's a pretty dire set of verses. And it ends with, in verse 4, Paul saying, and by nature, all of us are children of wrath. We are under God's judgment. Just like everybody else on planet Earth, Paul says, but God. Dead in your trespasses and sins and all the terrible things that that means, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And so Paul is overwhelmed in our text. He confesses to that. He is distressed inside and outside. If you take the translation of the New American Standard, he was depressed. But God. And what does God do in circumstances like that for all of us, to one degree or another? What does God do? He reaches out to us. He ministers to us. He brings help and comfort to us. You notice in our text, oftentimes through other people. Isn't that beautiful? See, that's what the church is supposed to be, isn't it? We're going to look in just a moment at the details of what Paul writes here, just in a, in a simple survey of what he writes. But if, if you are a Bible marker, I encourage you to notice and mark the words comfort, joy, and rejoicing. And if I counted accurately, they show up 11 times in our text. Comfort, joy, and rejoicing. So how do you get from depression... How do you get from deep distress, from being overwhelmed, exhausted, everything else, whatever was in Paul's experience, we've all been there one degree or another over our lifetime, and as I say, maybe somebody even this morning in the midst of something like this. All right, so God steps in, and he brings comfort and hope and renewal through people. And I want us to notice specifically in our text, in, in Paul's case, how did God bring that comfort to him through other people? And then I'm going to make an application at the end to all of us, and I think you'll know where I'm going with that. But let's notice the text first. First of all, verses 6 and 7, the text points out, Paul points out, that there was comfort and joy for Paul through the safe arrival of his co-worker Titus. He'd been waiting for Titus in Troas, no Titus. 
went across the Aegean Sea to the European continent. Where could he be looking for him? You notice verse 6. There it is right in, in, the, in, the verse, in verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul says, God came to me, as it were, through my dear friend, Titus, who showed up. His safe arrival, our meeting together again, all of a sudden, there I was in this distressed state of mind, and all of a sudden, Titus shows up. There he is. He's safe. All is well. Talk about a burden being lifted, Paul says in this passage. And then add to that, Paul says in verse 7, Titus told me about the kind of reception that he received from you. You notice that in the seventh verse. Told of your longing, your mourning, your zeal. The mourning, regretting the things that had happened in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. Their zeal to see him again. All of those things encouraged and stirred the Apostle Paul. But, but the main thing that Paul says in verses 6 and 7 is, I was comforted and that joy began to kind of shine again in my heart through the safe arrival of my dear friend and co-worker Titus. Then notice, secondly, God continues to bring comfort to Paul through other people. And this is kind of the body of our text, verse 8 through verse 13. God brought comfort and joy to Paul through the news of the Corinthians' response, namely a response of repentance. The congregation, Paul, had kind of been like this, at least certain ones in the congregation. And so he sends Titus. What's going to be the response? How are they going to take, because he's coming as my emissary. Some of us are not on really good terms right now. What's going to happen to Titus if he's my representative? Is that going to be a negative kind of a thing? What's going to happen? But here in these verses, Paul is comforted because of the response of the Corinthians to Titus when he showed up in Corinth. Now, notice starting in verse 8. Paul had sent a, a rather severe letter to the congregation. We discover that elsewhere in 2 Corinthians. It's a letter that is now lost. We have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians, but there was a letter he had written in between 1 and 2 Corinthians which is now lost to history. And so this is the letter Paul's talking about in verse 8. And Paul said, after I sent it, I had some second thoughts, but Titus was already down the road. With the letter, because the letter was really strong. Uh, it had some very, um, very biting things to say. And so Paul says, after I wrote it, I kind of wished I could have recalled it. It's like when you send a text and you do send. It's, I guess now I saw a commercial the other day, you can like recall your text, I guess. But you know, you, you're, you, you write something and you push send, and then two minutes later you think, oh, I never should have sent that. Ever done that? So Paul says, I wrote this letter, and I had some second thoughts after I sent it off. And he says, indeed, my letter grieved you. But he says, that's not my ultimate intent, if you notice, kind of paraphrasing what Paul writes here. I wrote to you plainly. I wrote to you strongly. Some of you would say, Paul says, I wrote harshly to you. Okay, be that as it may. But I wrote like I did to bring you to the place of repentance, to kind of shake you, to wake you up. And Paul says, by God's grace, praise the Lord, that's exactly what happened. As a congregation, you turned back from the direction you were going and turned back into the right path, and there was genuine repentance. And hearing Titus's report about that, boy, talk about bringing me encouragement, Paul says. 
And you notice, and I'm going to come to this next week about what is real repentance. For, for now, I just want to touch on it. You notice in our text that when repentance is genuine, it will always bear fruit. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. But it's saying, I'm sorry, and there's a change that takes place as a result of genuine heart sorrow. So I want you to notice in verse 11, the repentance of the Corinthians is verified in seven ways. Notice the little word, what, in the text. And so what does Paul say? Verse 11. He starts out by, by saying, see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. So as a result of Titus coming, the severe letter that I sent, th there is an earnestness that was produced in you. And then Paul goes on to explain, so what did that earnestness look like? Earnestness is a general word. Okay, so in what ways were they earnest? How is their earnestness evidenced? So this is sort of like a heading to the list, but it's number one. What did that earnestness look like? Okay, so Paul in the text, if you want to translate it more literally, Paul says there was great earnestness, but not only earnestness, but this, but that, but the other. That's the way to understand Paul's list here. So there was great earnestness, and it was evidenced by an eagerness to clear yourselves, Paul says. The Corinthians had been part of wrongdoing. Some of them had. Others had been indifferent to it. Others had condoned it in one way or another. Paul says, now you are striving to clear your name. You're striving to make things right, to prove your loyalty. Okay, there is real earnestness. There's genuine repentance because there's now an eagerness to clear yourselves. Notice the next one. What indignation. Indignation against those who had created the offense in the congregation justly upset about what they should have been upset about and indignation against themselves for letting the congregation get to the place where it was where they were becoming kind of alienated from Paul what indignation not only that but also what fear fear of God's chastisement Hebrews says whom the Lord loves he chastens what might God do if we keep going down the road we're going what fear? Fear of how they treated Paul. Here he had founded our church. He loved us unconditionally, and we've treated him this way. The one sent from heaven to bring the gospel to us. What fear? Not only that, Paul says, but what longing? Longing to make things right. Longing to see him again. Not only that, but what zeal? Zeal to do the right thing. Zeal to honor the message that Paul had brought to them. Not only that, but what punishment? You've demonstrated a willingness to deal with those who are kind of the ringleaders of all the troubles in the church. You're going to deal with it straight on. And so Paul says, obviously your repentance is genuine because it's evidenced in all these things, says the apostle. And as Paul brings this list to a close, Paul says, you notice in verse 12, I wrote this painful letter to you, Paul says, not so much for the sake of the wrongdoer, not so much for the sake of the one who was wrong, but for your sakes as a whole. Notice this in, in, uh, in the end of this passage, in verse 12. I wrote this in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. That you might understand that after all these things, you really are devoted to me. Not to Paul per se, but to me as the apostle 
commissioned on the Damascus road to bring the gospel, that you'll realize something about yourselves, Paul says, through all of this. And the bottom line for me personally, Paul says, notice the therefore at the beginning of verse 13. Therefore, we are comforted. So there is great comfort from the fact that his good friend and co-worker Titus is back. There's great comfort and renewal from the fact that the Corinthians have responded in an amazing way to the letter and to Titus's visit. And then notice thirdly, and finally, God brought comfort and joy to Paul through the news of Titus being built up by the Corinthians. So Paul himself is refreshed and encouraged because Titus is back. He hears the report. That's encouraging. And then Titus says, guess what, Paul? I was blessed. I'm stronger in my faith because I made the trip. And Paul says, well, that encourages me also. He was uplifted. He was refreshed in spirit. Now, it's kind of interesting as Paul closes out this text, kind of reading between the lines of what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, you need to know something, Paul says to the Corinthians. Before Titus ever made the trip, he was kind of hesitant to go. He was apprehensive as to what kind of reception he was going to get when he showed up in Corinth. But Paul says, to paraphrase him, but I bragged on all of you before I sent Titus, Paul says. And so you made the trip, and Paul says, praise God, my boasting about you didn't fall to the ground. You know, what Titus experienced was exactly what I bragged about before he ever went. Thank God that turned out. And so Paul says, because of your open-hearted response to Titus, he was encouraged, I was encouraged, and Paul says, notice verse 16. This is an amazing end to the text. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Boy, that's quite a thing to write to the Corinthians, isn't it? I have complete confidence in you. And, and so Paul, these are the specifics for Paul, he experienced in his state of distress and being downcast, being depressed, God used other people to bring him out of those distressing frame of mind and circumstances. Okay, the same for us. Here's where the application comes. What's always amazing to me sometimes is people who are distressed, maybe depressed, talk to God about it, but I don't want anybody to know. Then you wonder why nothing happens. How does God work? How does God enter into the circumstances of people who are going through a tough time? It's not like manna from heaven. He sends somebody to make a phone call. He sends somebody to stop by. There are some ta beautiful, tangible ways. So, so let me encourage you, if you're one of those who's going through a tough time, oh, I don't want anybody to know. That's kind of pride, by the way. It's pride. Make those things known. We are supposed to be, we are by God's grace, a family together. If one hurts, we all hurt, Paul says elsewhere. If one sheds tears, we all shed tears. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. That's how it's supposed to be in a family setting. And, and so when you find yourself in that kind of circumstance, you, you think, you know, what, what I have found uh, over the years, and oftentimes it has to do with this matter of depression in all the churches I've been in. Somebody will sit in my office and they'll finally dare to, to speak these kinds of things. And they'll say to me, you know, I'm battling with, I hate to use the word depression, and they're waiting for my response. 
battling with depression. I know I'm like a not good, a good Christian. I know I'm probably the only one. And to many of them, I said, if only I could tell you. But other have, others have spoken to me in confidence. If only I could give you the names of others that you would know that are going through the same thing. But we tend to think I'm the only one. Something's wrong with me. Now, sometimes I had a, a, an individual in Minot who was clinically depressed because he wouldn't deal with sin in his life. Okay, there are sometimes those kinds of circumstances, very obviously. But like, like Charles Spurgeon said, causeless depression can't be reasoned with. Sometimes that's the case. And so when people are going through a difficult time, I think it's embarrassing. What will people think? What will they say? Okay, if I, I'm not going to do it, but if I were to say, raise your hand if you've ever been like really down, maybe not clinically depressed per se, but how many of you, if I had asked for a show of hands, I wonder if everybody in the whole room would raise the hand. How are you doing on a Sunday morning, Pastor Dave? Oh, I'm doing fine. We're all doing fine. Everybody's fine. Nobody ever struggles. And if you do, because we're all fine, what's wrong with me? God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ so that we might be uplifted in tangible ways in times of need and struggle. And so you think about it, for those of us here this morning who maybe aren't in that dark and difficult place, what about those around us who find themselves in those circumstances? So, for example, let's say somebody's unemployed, or another has a difficult home life struggling with, or somebody has a chronically ill spouse, or someone has a wayward child or a grandchild that breaks their heart. Somebody else is beset by loneliness. Another is facing significant life changes. Do the rest of us care? Does it matter? Or are we so caught up with our own lives? Are we so consumed by our own pursuits, whatever they might be? Pursuit of materialism, that can take a lot of forms. That we're just so, quote, busy in life, so involved with other things that we are detached and we are uninvolved. You see, that's why the New Testament speaks so strongly about being an active part of a local congregation. And it starts on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning, sometimes people have said to me, I can worship God by myself out in the woods. Yes, you can. But you need to be here. You and I need to be here. Because it is in community, and it starts on a Sunday, that isn't the end of it, but it starts on a Sunday where you're able to greet people, you see people week in and week out, maybe there's been a prayer request you become aware of during the week and you can walk up to that person, and if indeed you've been praying to say, I've been praying for you this week, is there some way I can help you? How are you doing? Okay, you think about what that does in a person's life when you do that on a Sunday morning. I mentioned this to men's group uh, this last Tuesday for a Bible study. What would it be on a Sunday morning if you were talking to somebody and somebody says, you know, I've got a tough decision I've got to make this week, and then you just say, well, you know, hopefully you'll have wisdom. God bless you. See you next Sunday. 
what if we stopped and said, can I pray for you right now? Okay, not, not just the person up by, by the kneeler waiting to pray, but just if somebody were to share that and you said, can I pray with you right now? Let's sit down right here. I want to pray. You think about what that would do over the weeks and months in this church if that kind of thing were to happen. And so it starts on a Sunday morning. That's the importance, by the way, of being regular every Sunday. You can't get to know people. You can't get to know their needs if you're hit and miss. You need to be here. But that is not all. So that's why in the congregation, I, I think of like on Wednesday nights, Georgia has a mops group. Okay, if you're a young mom, what a fabulous place to go. Because there you are, other young moms facing some of the th same things in life, able to share from a Christian perspective. You get to know one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, support one another in the Lord. How important that group is on Wednesday night. You think about Sunday school. Men's Bible study, women's Bible study. Are you part of any of that? If you're not, you need to be. Because what we find in our men's study, and I see a number of you out here, it's, I mean, I've told the guys, I look forward to Tuesday. I mean, I can't wait till Tuesday rolls around. Because we have a wonderful study together, but we have fellowship together and prayer together. And even at the end sometimes, different ones hang around and you just start talking about things in life. You get to know the other person much better. You get to know their interests, things from their past, all kinds of things, and it builds a beautiful bond together in Christ that bears fruit in the long run. And so this matter of, of, of being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, the Sunday morning is where you need to start. But beyond that, finding your way into various groups and fellowships where on a far deeper level than can ever happen on a Sunday... You get to know other folks. You get to pray with them. You get to share with them. And so, as Paul points out in this text, this is the main point. God wants to reach out to us. He does reach out to us in all of our distress, whether it's just a little bit discouraged or all the other end of the spectrum to depression. Wherever we are on the spectrum, God wants to reach out to us, and He does it through other people. He does it through fellow believers. Um, I, and, and I don't want to mean to embarrass Pastor Dave this morning, but when Laurel and I were really sick a couple weeks ago, Pastor Dave, without being asked, said, I'm going to bring a dinner over to the house. I'm going to bring you some things that you might need. Okay, I mean, you don't pay for that kind of relationship. I mean, what does that do? What do you think that did for Laurel and me? And so you, so you think about what, when you can do those kinds of things, what that does in the lives of others, the way that you can bless others and bring encouragement to others. I, I'm kind of stirred up about this this morning. I hope you can sense that. But it's so important. It is so important. And so the point of our text is that God, God's comfort comes through other believers. Yes, the hand of mercy was yours, but in a real sense it was God's hand. Yes, the kindness was yours, but it was God's kindness. Yes, the generosity was yours, but it was God's generosity. Yes, the voice was yours. You're the one who shared. You're the one who prayed with the person. You're the one who gave words of encouragement. It was your voice, but it was actually God's voice. You see, and, and, and when these things become important to all of us, 
where we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ, when our lives are centered in the Lord, when our joy is in Him, our joys and our trials become one, and there is a bond that the world cannot duplicate among brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my prayer is that in these days to come, that as a fellowship of believers together, that in greater ways needs will be met, people will be uplifted, Believers will be encouraged. Those who are struggling will not be ashamed to admit to it and find brothers and sisters in Christ who will lift them up. God grant that it might be so. Let's pray together. Ah, Lord, uh, sometimes when we pray, we uh, expect the answer to be dropped on our head from the sky. And you work through ordinary means. Yes, you can work extraordinary things, obviously. You have. But Lord, uh, you work so oftentimes through ordinary means, ordinary people, the circumstances around us, and you're just as present, just as surely as you are in the big and the spectacular and the awesome. And uh, so Lord, I pray that in our fellowship together here, that we might be in greater ways joined together in heart, in spirit, in care, in concern, in love, in outreach, in ministry. Lord, thank you that you know us on the inside. You don't cast us aside. And Lord, as you use the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and others who struggled with some rather significant dark times in their lives, you can work through all things. And Lord, there is always that opening of the prison door, as Spurgeon put it, that, that your hope and mercy somehow just opens the door and the light floods in. And we find strength and grace to go another day, another week, to press ahead. And so, Lord, if there are any here this morning who find themselves in a difficult place, may they not walk out the door saying, yeah, but I'm still too embarrassed or I'm still too ashamed or this or that. May, may they find someone this day that can bring encouragement and help and prayer, can come alongside in uh, life-changing ways. Thank you for your great mercies to us through Christ. May we share those mercies with others as we have the chance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.